0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Close Talking. I am Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am Connor McNamara-Strat. And together we are two dudes with one love of poetry. Today's poem is a first in Close Talking history. It is the first poem that was not selected by myself and not selected by Connor. It was selected by one of our uh, internet gentle people. (laughs) E-fans? E-friends? Web friends? Twitter friends? Twitter compatriots? All right, tell them. Who was it? So this tweet, pal, uh, gender nonspecific, because the gender is unknown, is can be found at Deep State Radio Nerds. They are the official, unofficial fan account of the Deep State Radio podcast, which, if you don't listen to, I highly recommend you check out. It features a whole bunch of very smart articulate foreign policy and national security professionals who have as much fun talking about those issues as we do talking about poetry here. They've got inside jokes, they've got fan accounts on Twitter for their pets, real and imagined, and one of them even has an account for his pastrami sandwich. So definitely check out that show because it's like, if you're familiar with the McElroy brothers and their brand of podcasting, it's like if that was being done by people who have spent their whole lives crafting policy. It's fantastic.
1: I listened to a few, I got it queued up. I'm a subscriber.
0: It's good stuff. The (laughs) point of all this is that uh, dear Sweet at Deep State Radio Nerds suggested this poem, which is the poem Memory by Siegfried Sassoon. I think we'll dig right into the poem and do some biographical details of Sassoon a little bit later on because this poem is, as most of his are, uh, in equal measures, sad and angry, and deeply engaged with questions of what war brings to a human's experience. So, this is Memory by Siegfried Sassoon. When I was young, my heart and head were light, and I was gay and feckless as a colt, out in the fields with morning in the May, wind on the grass, wings in the orchard bloom. Oh, thrilling sweet my joy when life was free and all the paths led on from Hawthorne time across the caroling meadows into June. But now my heart is heavy laden. I sit burning my dreams away beside the fire for death has made me wise and bitter and strong. And I am rich in all that I have lost. Oh, starshine on the fields of long ago, bring me the darkness and the nightingale, dim wields of vanished summer, peace of home and silence and the faces of my friends.
1: Cool. It's a throwback <laughs> poem.
0: It's, uh, it... it's yeah, World War One. Yeah, other than the Emily Dickinson poem, this may be the farthest back we've ever reached.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, I have to say, we talked briefly in our episode on what the living do about the quote-unquote poem feeling that one sometimes gets at the end of a poem. And I feel like, at least for me, the end of this poem, much like the end of what the living do, gives me that quote-unquote poem feeling of just like, damn. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, and I, we should get to the bio, but I want to talk about the ending because I, that's the, the real clincher part in a lot of ways, so. It's got some goods, some nuggets.
0: It brings a whole new aspect to the poem, because at first you think there's two things going on in the poem. There's this time that's remembered fondly, and there's this new time that is not great, but all of a sudden, it's not just about a good time before bad things happened and a time after the bad things happened there is now a longing for what was lost in a new way with the introduction of other people it's the death of friends it's the loss of friends and that experience
1: yeah so and he so he was he fought he was an officer in world war 1 is that true or did he fight cuz it's also that's i feel like that was it's like not just the the death of people, not just the death of friends, but it's the death of friends within the context of a mass, you know, global catastrophe that is World War One.
0: Yeah. Sassoon so was an officer, and more importantly, he was a little bit older than a lot of the men he was fighting with. And most famously, he was older than uh, Wilfred Owen, who is linked to him as sort of a writing, not so much protege, but he was definitely a a mentor figure to Owen. Uh, Owen is also a very famous poet from this period, who died young during the war. Sassoon actually lived on until 1967. And the two of them are linked partially because of their time spent together at uh, Craig Lockhart, which was a mental facility, basically, where men suffering from shell shock at the front could go, and a lot of early psychological techniques were pioneered there, many of which were pretty bad. Electroshock therapy, a lot of quick fixes that were almost like slapping a band-aid on a deep issue so that whoever the person was who was suffering from some kind of trauma from the battlefield could immediately be sent back, which fits into all of the different narratives about World War I and replicability, industrialization. These men are treated in the hospital much like replaceable components in a machine, just fix the brain, send them back into the foxholes until they get shell shock again, they come back to the hospital, they go back to the foxholes. It's a whole cycle that isn't interested in the individual, it isn't interested in actually treating the problem, it's interested in shipping somebody back to the front. Sassoon comes into this particularly because he calls out the British government on it and he calls them out about the war not just in his poems but he actually writes a letter about it that gets him into massive trouble with the government to the point that they want to throw him in jail. Sassoon not just in chronicling his experience through his poetry but also through his political engagement was a figure who if not super popular was at least somewhat known, and had definitely staked out what his relationship to this conflict was. If you are interested in a really great literary account of Craig Lockhart, there is a trilogy of books called the Regeneration Trilogy by Pat Barker, and they are incredible, and they deal with all of these different issues, and they take Sassoon and Owen and other real historical figures, and their real experiences as they're jumping off point. And they're just brilliant books. So highly recommend Pat Barker's Regeneration Trilogy. And if you're interested in
1: poetry uh, World War One, I, I just listened to these today. Poetry Spoken Here, our sibling podcast, I'm not sure the exact familial, filial relationship. Um, poetry Spoken Here, which um, usually uh, Jack said Charlie's the host, but in these two episodes, uh, Jack is doing the hosting episodes 20 and 24 uh, with Sam Grake. And she talked to Jack about um, the influence of the, the, the war on uh, German and British poetry and literature. Really good, highly recommend, and a great sort of follow-up if,
0: if you're, if you're peaked. By this: Thank you for that programming note plug. Those are good conversations if you want more of the historical and cultural context for the conversation on this poem because we always try to give a little bit of that. but we're a half hour show. We like to dig into the meat of the poem and give not just the historical context, but also the close literary textual analysis equal time. Speaking of meat of the poem. So
1: let's just dig in and give a little aboutness, walk through what's happening two sort of ways of doing that. Um, the first, I'll say briefly, and then we'll talk about the poem specifically, and this was this was touched on in, in those Poetry Spoken Here episodes, but it's really interesting to think about this poem as a sort of built-in uh, before and after World War I in terms of like as a microcosm of literature. So in the first, it's made up of two stanzas. Um, the first one uh, begins when my when I was young my heart and head were light da 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 and then the second stanza but now my heart is heavy laden and the first stanza has a very uh obvious conventional romanticism so it 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 feels like Keatsian or pastoral or wordsworth um where there's you know you're gay and feckless as a cult in the fields uh there's mourning you know um, and the the rhythm too feels uh, more um, flowing it's not uh harsh there's not like there's not a lot of enjambments really or intense enjamments and In in, in fact, there's actually no verb, really. It's kind of just, when I was la, when I was wa, oh, it was great. But it's just like, oh, thrilling, sweet. It's not, oh, it was thrilling, sweet. It's just a timeless, sort of verbless memory of of sort of romantic loveliness. Notable, too, that Sassoon was sort of, uh, I believe, upper class uh aristocrat so his life probably actually was that good um, it's just funny cuz sometimes the conversation and is like you know world war 1 was so terrible you know and it was but it's like it wasn't like glory for everyone and then the war happened it's just it was i mean it was particularly terrible for everyone but you know there was a lot especially i guess towards the end of the war a lot of lower middle-class uh, people, men, were being thrown into the ranks, and anyway.
0: I think that's a great note, because life changed for basically everyone, regardless of social class, because of World War One, and because of the changes that it brought in the way that nations were organized, in the way that work was organized, in the, you know, just in the layout of the map of Europe, as Connor and I shared an AP Euro teacher in high school. Whoop, whoop. As as Jessica Young would say, World War I changed everything, uh, <laughs> but there was a particular disruption in upper class life that happened as a result of World War One, particularly in Britain, and this poem definitely captures that unique disruption and alteration.
1: Yes, and so, so to think about it in the two ways that I'm talking about, in the poem specifically we have Sassoon's memory or the speaker's memory of a beautiful pastoral youth um, and then on the other hand we think of the first ends as sort of a romantic formalism of um, pretty fields not a naive or without depth but focused on aesthetic beauty and um, direct expression we think about Uh, Wordsworth, poetry is uh, passionate feeling recollected in tranquility.
0: There's also the key romantic feature of the individual human subsumed by the landscape or overwhelmed by the power of nature because we don't get a sense of where the individual eye is in relation to any of this. It's a very ephemeral eye and the focus is all on the grass and the sweet joy and all of the experience, but not on the person. Mm-hmm. The landscape and the feeling completely dominates the individual, whereas the project of the second part of the poem, does I know you're getting there, uh, yeah. but the project of the second part of the poem is bringing us down and into the thought process of a human person. We don't get descriptions of any kind of landscape other than the landscape of the personal interiority of, because he's the author, let's say Sassoon. Yeah, no, totally.
1: That yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's a, that's a great point. Um, yeah, and so the second the second stanza, as Jacks um, already said, we we get into the person, and you know, but now my heart is heavy laden. I sit burning my dreams away beside the fire. Um, for death has made me wise. I have lost. There's darkness, silence, remembering faces of my friends. So that. As we think about the personal, you know, total loss, devastation, and the presence of Sassoon lies in what he no longer has. As that—that's what that—that that great line, "I am rich in all that I have lost." That's now where um, you know his wealth or his his substance is. Whereas before, in the first stanza you know, he finds the richness in the fields themselves or something. And then to think about that also as a kind of uh, microcosm of literature from World War One. we move into modernism and uh, as a kind of rejection or a subversion or some sort of confrontation with uh, the romantic uh, ideals. And we have a... Um, Well, devastation. Yeah, and so I I really love that line, uh, Bring Me the Darkness and the Nightingale. Especially the Nightingale, it makes you think of Keats. And I did a little uh, research, found this scholarly article that is called Modernism, Male Intimacy and the Great War by Sarah Cole, came out uh, in 2001. Um, And I like this line here. Uh, it talks about how the, these, these last lines hail a Keatsian darkness and the nightingale. Um, and then um, this line I think is worth quoting and thinking about the poem as a sort of uh, modernist text against the sort of romantic uh, history. Quote, having taken on the mantle of romantic poet, the writer now indicates what differentiates this war text from its precursor lyrics in the 19th century, as the death of friends becomes the essential material that constitutes the new self. It is finally the faces of lost friends that drive the poet to write. And then, if modernism, if modernism here defines itself as the heir to romanticism, It nevertheless asserts its own refusal to be healed by memory, rigidly maintaining its claim of primacy in suffering, and leaving us, like the poet himself, with the permanent echo of intensified and broken intimacy. I like that a lot. Yeah, which is kind of intense. Um, And and I'll I'll let you riff on it, but just as a quick echo, um, when I gave my horribly butchered generalization schematic in our last podcast uh, about um, the Herrera poem notes on the assemblage about modernism and postmodernism uh, my brief sketch about modernism was that we have an alienated self um, and so there's something and World War one had a lot to do with that in that there's a trauma that disrupts uh, our ability to um, you know have a cohesive identity or have an identity that's not um constituted by some very violent absence as it is in this case and so uh, what this scholar is sort of identifying in uh the sassoon poem is is that kind of alienation and rupture
0: definitely part of how that manifests also in post-world war one literature is a real distrust of language as a means of conveying meaning because of how language was twisted in the service of a war that was essentially a trench war where there was very little movement, a whole lot of death, but nations creating stories about themselves to basically send young men to their deaths. Writers who come out of that in the lost generation, most famously, but in many of the writers who come out of that, modernist writers, there is this uncertainty around language as a way to express the self. So the literature that comes out of World War One is infused with that uncertainty. I wanted to, so that quote from that article is super cool. Yeah. And it gave me this thought. Oh, <laughs> shit. What was your right? like, oh my that's God. what that's what scholarship should do. So <laughs> the thought that I had is that this is two different settings in which this person writing would sit down to write a poem. The mm-hmm. first is the field on your estate or some place where you're gonna sit down and write the kind of poem that you've been trained to write by your private tutors as a young upper-class British person who's gonna go on to be a gentleman and a man of letters as well as a man of business. You cogitate upon the beauty of the meadow and the Skylark and all this other nonsense, but then the war (laughs) happens, and when you sit down and think about trying to write a poem, you sit burning your dreams away You are wise and bitter and strong because of the death that you've seen. And you're looking to those fields of long ago, but you see them with new eyes. And what you really are confronted with in this moment of silence and contemplation is silence and the faces of your friends who you've lost.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And I like, too, especially thinking about um, that it's... I feel like the poem could easily have been some version of just the second stanza, uh, where it's like just the devastation, etc. But the the part that is sort of what you're getting at the poem and the part that is kind of the the modernist element is that both of them are the poem. That there is there is the the pastoral romantic beauty. That is staring you the fa- in the face as something you can no longer access because, because you've been wrecked in the war or in some other capacity, so that you know it, this is something you said in in the uh, the podcast episode with Sam, but the the present absence is very necessary. That we're not just rejecting. Or dismissing the tropes of romanticism but we are looking at them and thinking about how we can no longer have them and they're sort of haunting us from this new vantage from this second place of writing
0: a poem definitely I like that uh, it made me think actually of uh, Bruce Springsteen as most things do <laughs> whoop, but- whoop he was deeply influenced by the Vietnam War. He didn't actually serve in that war, but he knew tons of people who did because he came from a working class neighborhood in New Jersey and had a lot of friends who went and served. And he tells a story about the drummer in his first band who went and never came back. And everything about the experience of being around during Vietnam and seeing people serve and understanding that maybe you can't trust the leaders of your country had a major impact on his politics as he was growing up and on his songwriting. And he writes lots of songs about veterans. And he's really fascinated by what happens when veterans come back or don't come back. And he has more than one song that is about exactly this kind of presence of absence.
1: A small uh, rhythmic formal note. That, that I was, and I think might get at a little bit why the end has a particular uh, whoosh or jab or edge or goosebumps thing. Is um, so the first stanza really has, I t- mentioned this flow, but I wanna sort of uh, explain that more. Um, there's, so the first line is When I was young, my heart and head were light. There's no uh, commas there, it's, you know, the, the whole uh, phrase basically occupies the line. And that is, in a way, like, easy to read. So that's, like, got a nice flow, if, if, if that makes sense. Um, and basically that that stanza continues similar in a similar way for, for the most of the stanza. So, and I was gay and feckless as a cult. And then we have a line break, which is something, but the line break's not that bad because it just goes into out in the fields with morning in the May. Uh, so it's not like the end of the line isn't a verb, it's just the end of a cult. And then there's, a, there's more description, out in the fields with morning in the May. And then the next line is just continuing description, wind on the grass, wings in the orchard bloom. Um, and there's a nice sort of cadence there and then oh thrilling sweet my joy when life was free and all the paths led on from hawthorne time across the caroling meadows into june and so those three lines um basically are one sentence and the line breaks are are basically at the ends of phrases so the 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 third to last line, when life was free, line break, and all the paths led on. So there's, um, you know, the and is beginning a new phrase as the line begins anew. And this is just to say, it's nice to read, it's easy to read, it makes sense, you're not being told two different things with your, with your eyes. And then immediately, the second stanza uh, messes that up. Um, and it really does a lot of work, I think, to cue you into this being a, a drastic change. So, but now my heart is heavy laden, I sit. So, we have the but, obviously we know it's different, and, and the images are telling us this too, my heart is heavy. But also, there's a cesura, the, the sentence ends on heavy laden, but there's still two more words left on the line. And so, we sort of end with a, with a bit of a snap and then we have um, a pretty intense enjambment because of that. I sit burning my dreams away beside the fire. Um, so I feel like that is the first move that's, that cranks it in a new direction.
0: That first line could just as easily have been written as one piece. And it could say, I sit now, my heart heavy laden, line break, burning my dreams away beside the fire. It, it gets the same idea across but it doesn't use the poetic tools it doesn't get it across as effectively or as artfully
1: right right there are many there are many ways that he could have conveyed those images with the same flow as he was using in the first stanza Um, but he makes a deliberate rhythmic choice not to that reflects the shift and shatter uh, that the content is conveying. Um, and then I think, and I, I the end too, um, I won't go through the whole second stanza, but the end, I actually don't know how to articulate, but it's sort of very weird. The fourth to last line, oh, starshine on the fields of long ago, bring me the darkness and the nightingale. Um, so those are two long lines, and they have a nice imperative. Which I think is is notable, um, and also it's sort of, it's it's conjuring uh, even a certain element of the romantic of the nightingale. Bring me the the darkness in the nightingale. But then there's a semicolon, and then dim wheels of vanished summer, piece of home, and si- and then there's a line break, and a comma, and this is what's weird. And silence which is on the next line, and then there's a semicolon and the faces of my friends. And I think what's, what's odd about this deliberately is the piece of home, from a, from a line perspective, the piece of home being on its own line, you want a bigger pause there, right? But from a um, syntactical sentence perspective, you want a bigger pause after silence because that's where the si- that's where the um, the semicolon is. But also those are more connected, and the, the faces of my friends is a separate point. Um, so I think there's kind of a double slowing that's happening, uh, where it's like dim wheels of vanished summer, piece of home, line break, and silence, semicolon, and the faces of my friends. Um, which then I think when that hits, it's kind of you've been like jerked around and you're a little disoriented, and then suddenly you're confronted with um the faces of my friends.
0: It honestly reminds me of volleyball because the ideal volleyball point is bump set spike, and that's exactly what this does. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like the first I love part is, that. the second to last line is the bump and silence is the set and the faces of my friends is the spike, and boom.
1: I love that. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> Wait,
1: just one more quick yeah, yeah, point. Yeah, go, go, go. go, go, go. Um, there, And this, uh, I was thinking about, so bringing in the rhythmic moves um, in conversation with our discussion about how this being a more modernist poem, or at least a rejection of the romantic, um, the I do think that the irregular technical enjambments and stranger syntax in the second stanza speaks to the, the, the more unconventional modernist style that emerges. Uh, one thing that your friend uh, Sam was talking about was, were poets who had been trained romantically who then were in World War I found the conventions and the formal techniques of uh, romanticism unable to account for and speak to their experience. And so it wasn't just a matter of, of new images or direct expression, but it was a matter of, of different formal rhythms and styles that they needed.
0: And this poem is actually a great example of some of the ways they went about that because, it's a really good point, uh, a lot of what they did was specifically use the techniques they were taught and mess with them and subvert them the way that the society they knew, the religious understandings that they had. All of these assumptions about life were also being disrupted by the war. A lot of the writers finding that language inadequate were not just writing in a different way, they were writing against what they had been taught the subject of the rhythm of the poem, I was just looking at the ends of every line. In the first part of the poem, which is seven lines, the part that deals with the before time, two of those seven lines end in some form of punctuation, a comma and a period. In the second part of the poem, seven of the eight lines end in some form of punctuation, and they Mm. are colon, semicolon, period, comma, semicolon, comma, and period. Yes. So there is a more propulsive, disrupted use of punctuation mm-hmm. which speaks to the more fragmented and internal conversation that's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't have I anything else. I mean, there's always more to appreciate in this poem. Yeah. It really, I had been aware of it, but before doing this podcast had not sat with it the way that I did, the way we do when we're preparing for these. and. It is a poem that just really rewards that kind of time and that kind of investigation.
1: Yeah, and it's, it was cool. I had, I had barely even, maybe not even heard of Sassoon, actually, before you mentioned this, which is appalling and unforgivable, and I am fessing up to it on air. But it made me think of, because I had, you know, I'd read Wilfrin Owen and his poem, like, Dolce uh, et decorum est, etc., Um, But it was interesting to learn that Owen sort of looked up and admired Sassoon. And now we read Owen in my freshman year history class or something. So he's made it into the canon. Sassoon is like not out of the canon, but people don't. He's much less well-known than Owen is, even though during their time, Sassoon was the the more popular elder
0: respected poet. What, read it again? Uh-huh. I think we need to read it again. All right. When I was young my heart and head were light and I was gay and feckless as a colt out in the fields with morning in the may wind on the grass, wings in the orchard bloom. Oh thrilling sweet my joy when life was free and all the paths led on from Hawthorne time across the caroling meadows into June. But now, my heart is heavy-laden. I sit, burning my dreams away beside the fire, for death has made me wise and bitter and strong, and I am rich in all that I have lost. O starshine on the fields of long ago, bring me the darkness and the nightingale, dim wields of vanished summer peace of home and silence and the faces of my friends thank you deep state radio nerds for suggesting this poem yes thank you so much big shout out and big thanks yeah let us know what you think yeah uh, let us know what you think about this episode and everybody else let us know what you think we yeah. want to hear from you If you have suggestions for episodes, we will take them seriously and do episodes about them. Just ask at Deep State Radio Nerds. This is proof. This is literal proof. You can tweet us with suggestions for poems or comments on any of our episodes at Close Talking for the Show, at Hot Sauce Boxed for Connor, at Jack Rossiter Munn for me. And you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash close talking, or you can send us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com we want to hear from you Uh, that was real fun